Good afternoon. My name is Odell Harris. And this is First Cup in the Morning. Our today's story is about the Zodiac Killer. Now this serial killer has never been caught or identified. He claimed to kill 37 people. But the police said it was only seven. Such remains a mystery about the Zodiac case. The issue is when the crime stopped. The issue is when, how can a serial killer remain unidentified? When no one knows what he looked like or where he went or whatever happened to him. Now the Zodiac killer remains a mystery. A dozen of people was uh, talked to and suspect, but nothing came of it. They had one suspect, Arthur Lee Allen, came close to be the, they believed he was the Zodiac killer, but when they took his DNA, but didn't they have DNA back in the 60s? Or was it in the infant stage? We don't know. But in Vallejo, California, school teacher have been institutionalized in 1975 for a molestation through his identification with the serial killer. It, it wasn't. It wasn't the right person. This serial killer remains a mystery for the last 50 years. And we'll be right back after these messages. My name is Odell Harris, and you're listening to First Cup in the Morning. Do you need a new mattress? If you've been shopping around, you know how expensive it is to buy a high-quality mattress that you'll also be happy with for years to come. But that's what makes All's Well different. You see, All's Well features hybrid mattress technology, giving you the comfort of memory foam with the support of individually wrapped coils, all at an unbeatable price. And you can even try it for 100 nights risk-free. If you're not satisfied with the sleep that you're getting on one of their heavenly mattresses, simply ship it back. Plus, every one of their mattresses comes with a 10-year limited warranty. So if you ever have any problems, you don't have to worry about getting stuck with a lemon. When it comes to affordable mattresses that don't sacrifice on quality or luxury, All's Well is the best purchasing decision that you can make. Now, if you'd like to get free shipping on your first mattress from All's Well, simply follow the link in the show notes to let them know that we sent you and to help support the show. All's Well, dreamy mattresses for real life. Now, after the first murder, the expert claimed it was not committed by him. Soon after the murder, the local paper received a letter, and the letter provided details of the crime and declared that the victim was either the first nor it would be the last. Now, the serial killer in 1968, a teenage couple was shot to death near their car in a remote area of North San Francisco. One year later after that, another couple was attacked 
similar circumstances. Same way. Throw the male victim survived after the attack. After the 1969 attack, the killer phoned the police and alerted them that the crime and to take responsibility for the murders in 1968. Later that year, the Zodiac Killer attacked a young couple. Though once again, the male survived. The last victim was a taxi driver. At that time, he didn't know that the passenger in his back seat was the notorious Zodiac Killer. The Zodiac Killer pulled out his gun, shot the taxi driver in the back of his head, wiped down the car, took a part of his shirt, and mailed it back to the police. Showing them it was the Zodiac Killer. Now he claimed to have 37 victims. Was it a Zodiac Killer first, and then a copycat killer the second? And the investigation, the media coverage, partly because the the killer taunted police with letters and phone call. He based his decision to kill, he said, because he liked it. And he said, if you don't post these letters in your, in your paper this weekend, I'm a killer. About a dozen people randomly just go through just killing folks. The police and the papers was trying to save lives, so they posted his letter. Now, the serial killer boasted. Maybe it made him feel good that all the attention was on him. Then all of a sudden, The attack stopped. And then the papers talked about him. And he appeared once again. This time he said, I'm not going to leave clues. It's going to be random killings. Some going to look like accidents. Some going to look like robberies. All the attacks stopped. Whatever happened to the Zodiac Killer, he was never caught. Did he have a heart attack? Was he in prison for other crimes? I've read a paper somewhere where he was killed and he was buried in an unmarked grave in Mexico. Who knows? If you like serial killer, it's a mystery. 
but the family of these people who died, I don't think they give a damn. My name is Odell Harris. And this is First Cup in the Morning. And before the end of our program, we want everybody to be safe. When you come from outside, wash your hand at least 20 seconds. Do not touch your face. Stay about six feet away from your friends. The most prolific serial killer these days is that coronavirus, Corona-19, to kill more people than serial killers, car accidents, heart attacks. Be safe out there. And we'll see you later. Hello, my name is Odell Harris. And this is First Cup in the Morning. Tonight, another story about two serial killers right here in Toledo, Ohio. Anthony and Nathaniel Cook for 17 months they evaded the Toledo police as they performed the crimes that would make them the most notorious prolific serial killers in the state the gruesome murders began May 1980 that terrorized and locked the city in fear. Brutally beaten bodies were found in ditches. A young couple was found dead in cars and trunks of cars and culverts. As the rampage began to cook brothers, I guess they thought to themselves they would never be caught. But the TPD was right on their case. My name is Odell Harris. And we'll be right back after these messages. What if it was possible to get local, fresh groceries delivered right to your front door? You could take up underwater basket weaving with all of that free time. Well, Instacart gives you unlimited grocery delivery for one low monthly fee. Way better than the other guys that nickel and dime you every time you use their app. Forget that one ingredient you needed to make your grandma's famous casserole? Instacart can deliver it to your front door in as little as one hour. You can shop multiple stores, see deals in your area to help you save money, and every item is hand-selected by shoppers based on your preferences. No more rock-hard avocados. And they'll keep your eggs safe, too. To start your 14-day free trial... Follow the link in the show notes to let Instacart know that we sent you and to help support the show. Instacart, never step foot in a grocery store again. Okay. The Cook brothers both was convicted in Lucas County Common Pleas Court for the day rolls in the murder of Thomas Gordon, 24, an attempted murder and kidnapping of his 18-year-old girlfriend. The couple was abducted in 1980, May 14, 1980, in North Toledo. 
and was taken to Western Lucas County where Mr. Gordon was shot in the stomach and his girlfriend was raped and stabbed but they survived Anthony Cook was now 59 he already serving a, a life sentence for the murder of Mr. Shiriki was given an additional 20 years to life punishment his brother 49 was given a 20 year sentence and will be released from prison in about 10 years because he already getting credit for the time he already served but what time is that? How much time do you really get for murder? As Detective Styles investigating the Gordon murder and the next six killings, Connie Sue Thompson, 19, was also killed by the Cook brothers after she was picked up hitchhiking on Cherry Street. Don. Renee, I think her name, Bex, a 12-year-old Jesuit elementary school student, was raped and bludgeoned in the basement of a Central City Theater. Scott Moulton, 21, and Denise Silowski, 22, was also shot and killed the car in Oregon apartments. Now Daryl Cole, 31, and his girlfriend Stacy Bojack, 21, who was beaten to death and found in the trunk of Mr. Cole's car in North Toledo. Now that's a lot of people they killed. Doing the investigation, Anthony Cook took the grind to information which eventually developed him and his brother at the prime suspect. But see, the TPD was on it. And when they grabbed him, Anthony Cook confessed to the 1973 murder of Vicki Lynn Smalls, 22. A crime he committed when he was 24 years old. He went to prison for six years for armed robbery. Her body was dumped in Ottawa Park. We all jogged there in Ottawa Park. Well, Miss Smalls was picked up after she had her and her friends had car trouble. And he agreed to give her a ride. I said, don't get in cars with people you don't know. Cook was convicted of killing Mr. Shreshak in an attack of the Ottawa Hills man's daughter and boyfriend. But Mr. Stiles and other investigators continued to work on this case. That's the TPD for you. Despite after 17 years, DNA evidence was instrumental of getting indictments against the Cooks and bringing 
long sorted resolution to the cases. Mr. Stell was working as the director of security in a local department chain store when Miss Julia Bates called him with the idea of using DNA. So the detective identified the crime he believed that the Cook brothers committed, also evidence to be tested using this DNA. And DNA came a long way. And that's how they got him. But Mr. Styles, using his spare time, and three years ago, and worked on, he worked, I guess he was working on him a book. But they eventually got these two serial killers. Now, you can always get a read about the uh, stories. Hopefully, I got most of it right. My name is Odell Harris. And this is First Cup in the Morning. More stories like these right here on First Cup in the Morning. Sometimes it takes us a little investigation work. Because right now you can't go down there and talk to anybody. You know, TPD, they probably got their hands full. But you can hear stories like these and more. Right here on First Cup in the Morning with Odell Harris. The Cook Brothers murder. In Toledo, Ohio. You heard it right here on First Cup in the Morning. First cup. Good morning. Good afternoon. My name is Odell Harris, and you're listening to First Cup in the Morning. You're listening to the only interview of the world prolific serial killer. His name was Jeffrey Dahmer. Idea that uh, uh, there's just really no point in going in depth into any in depth talks about it. We we talk about uh, our family, uh, home, how things used to be. Uh, what uh, prison life is here is like here now and uh, try to keep uh, things as, as light and upbeat as possible is it hard for you to go back and talk about those things uh, no not not the good things in fact it gives me a sense of comfort to talk about uh, the, the few good times there were in the past you say the few good times do you think of your childhood as having been profoundly unhappy? No, not profoundly. My childhood wasn't wasn't uh, filled with any any great tragedies or anything. There were good times and there were bad times. I, th I think it was fairly normal. Jeff, do you remember your your earliest experience and earliest interest, fascination with the inside of animals? Where that came from? Uh, in ninth grade. Uh, in biology class, we had uh, the usual dissection of uh, fetal pigs. I took the remains of that home and, and kept uh, the skeleton of it. And I just started branching out uh, dogs, cats. 
I suppose it could have turned into a, a, a normal hobby like taxidermy, but it, it didn't. It veered off into into this. Why? I, I don't know. All I know is that uh, I wanted to, to see what the insides of these animals looked like. Was there some pleasure in, in the cutting open of the animal? Yes, there was. No, no sexual pleasure, but just a... It's hard to describe. Sense of power? Sense of control? I suppose that's a good way of putting it, yeah. yeah. I can sort of see a fascination for, you know, wanting to see uh, or looking at the insides of animals, say, for the first time. After you did it one time, what more is to be gained by looking at another dog's inside the second yeah, or I don't third. Know. I don't know. That's, it that's became a compulsion and it switched from animals to humans. I, I, I still don't understand it. I don't know why. What would you do with the, with the dead animals, Jeff? You would pick the carcasses up from the road and take them back into the woods. Take them back in the woods, uh, skin them sometimes, uh, slit them, slit them all the way open, uh, look at the organs, feel them. It was a sort of ex uh, general excitement for me. I don't know why. It was, a, it was exciting to see. One of your dad's... Good morning. Good afternoon. My name is Odell Harris. And this is First Cup in the Morning. Today's story is about another Ohio serial killer. His name was Anthony Solwell. Mr. Anthony Solwell lived in Cleveland, Ohio. This serial killer took lives of 11 people and hid their bodies in his duplex in Ohio. Because Mr. Solwell served in the military and received five medals he was a respected member of the community. This only made the news of him being a serial killer more shocking. Before his killing spree, he served time in jail. I'll be right back after this message. If you've been shopping around, you know how expensive it is to buy a high-quality mattress that you'll also be happy with for years to come. But that's what makes Allswell different. You see, Allswell features hybrid mattress technology, giving you the comfort of memory foam with the support of individually wrapped coils, all at an unbeatable price. And you can even try it for 100 nights risk-free. If you're not satisfied with the sleep that you're getting on one of their heavenly mattresses, simply ship it back. Plus, every one of their mattresses comes with a 10-year limited warranty. So if you ever have any problems, you don't have to worry about getting stuck with a lemon. When it comes to affordable mattresses that don't sacrifice on quality or luxury, Allswell is the best purchasing decision that you can make. Now, if you'd like to get free shipping on your first mattress from Allswell, simply follow the link in the show notes to let them know that we sent you and to help support the show. All's Well, dreamy mattresses for real life. All's Well's mattresses. You heard it break your own. 
first cup in the morning. Now, Mr. Saulwell did his time in jail for restraining and rape of a pregnant woman. Now, after his release two years later, he went on a killing spree that killed up to 11 people. And he hid hid their bodies all over his duplex in the backyard. He put some bodies in uh, in gardens. In around uh, 2009, a rape of another woman, which she escaped and made it to the police and said that Mr. Saulwell raped her. Now, when the police went to his house to investigate, and Mr. Saulwell opened the door, the smell knocked him back. When they went into his house to investigate, there was a horrible smell. Then they looked down at the sight of two bodies right on his living room floor. Never in their life they ever seen. Just right out front, laying right there. At the end of the investigation, so was convicted of killing 11 people and hiding bodies on his property both in his house and in his garden now Mr. Saulwell was convicted and sentenced to death in 2011 but you know with stay of execution and all that his execution date was scheduled for 2020 Another one of Ohio's deadly serial killers. You heard it right here on First Cup in the Morning with Odell Harris. Is it me? Or is it the water in Ohio? It seems like Ohio produces a lot of serial killers. I don't know. I live in Ohio. It seems like a great state to me. Nice little pocket neighborhoods. Nice cities. Maybe it's the air. Another story coming to you from First Cup in the Morning with Odell Harris. Now with this virus going around, you need to wear that mask. Wash your hand every time you come from outside At least 20 seconds a day The mask is to protect If you have the virus Protect other people From you giving it to them So protect yourself Be safe My name is Odell Harris And this is First Cup of the Morning
My name is Odell Harris, and this is First Cup in the Morning. The story today is about an African-American serial killer. Most serial killers are white. That's true. Over the course of time, there have been a few that wasn't. My name is Odell Harris, and this is First Cup in the Morning. The serial killer we're about to tell you today is about Lewis Wallace, Henry Lewis Wallace, a black serial killer who restricted himself and his victim to his own race. Most like typical serial killers, they used to pick their targets randomly. But Mr. Wallace killed people that he knew. In September of 1992, in March of 94, Wallace raped, strangled nine young black women in Charlotte, North Carolina. They was all people that he knew. One was his girlfriend's roommate. The other was friends with his sister. His first six victims of murder happened over a 20 month span. And three was within 72 hours. When he was arrested in January 1994, he confessed to all nine killings. We'll be right back after this message. From Buzzcast. And before we jump into today's episode, I want to take a second and tell you about the world's softest comforter. It's called the Buffy Breeze, and it really is quite amazing. Traditional comforters feel good at first, but if you're anything like me, you just get hot in the middle of the night and end up kicking them to the floor. But Buffy's different, because it's filled with 100% breathable eucalyptus fibers. And these fibers make it naturally temperature regulating. It's also hyperallergenic and resistant to dust, mold, and mites. Their manufacturing process requires less water and land use than cotton, and each Buffy comforter protects 12 geese from live plucking. Are you ready for the best part? You can try this Buffy comforter in your own bed for seven nights free of charge. That's right. You place an order, you try it out, and if you don't love it, you send it back, all without a charge ever hitting your card. They provide free shipping, free returns, and always ship with responsible certified carbon-neutral carriers. Buffy also makes a comforter made from recycled water bottles, they make duvet covers, and they make crazy soft sheets. So if you're in the market for some new bedding, please follow the links in our show notes to claim your seven-night risk-free trial. This lets Buffy know that we sent you and helps support our show. Stay cool and comfy all night with Buffy. And that was from Buffy Comforter. You heard it right here on First Cup in the Morning with Odell Harris. Now, Mr. Henry Lewis Wallace killed over nine young black women in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. That's everybody he knew. If you was kin to him, if you was... uh, You knew his sister or somebody like that. 
this man was coming at you. That's how he was. After January 1994, when he was arrested, he confessed to all nine killings. He was sentenced to death. My name is Odell Harris. This is First Cup in the Morning. And don't forget, with this virus and stuff out there, wash your hands at least 20 seconds. You come in from shopping, wash your hands. You touch the door or not, wash your hands. Let's contain this virus. My name is Odell Harris, and you're listening to First Cup in the Morning. It's their comforter. Think about it. You sleep with it every night, but simply changing your comforter can be the difference between restless nights and the sleep that you deserve. And that's why we recommend Buffy, the world's softest comforter. It's filled with breathable 100% eucalyptus fiber. That's what koalas eat. That's good for the environment and is hypoallergenic, so you don't have to worry about dust, mites, and mold. And unlike that cotton stuffed comforter that you're currently sleeping with, Buffy comforters are extremely breathable, keeping you cool and comfy all night without having to kick your comforter to the floor in the middle of the night. Buffy even lets you try their comforter in the comfort of your own home with free shipping and returns. It truly is a win-win scenario. If you don't love it, simply ship it back. Now, to get a seven-day, no-pay free trial, just follow the link in the show notes to let Buffy know that we sent you and to help support the show. Buffy, the softest comforter on the planet. Okay, everybody, that's our show for today. And we'll see you next time. Right here on First Cup in the Morning with Odell Harris. And you can check us out on Spotify, Google Play Music. And we're going to be going live on uh, Podbean, so, you know, hit us up. These stories and more about serial killers and missing people right here in Toledo, Ohio. My name is Odell Harris. And you're listening to First Cup in the Morning. Good afternoon. My name is Odell Harris. And this is First Cup in the Morning. Today's story is about another African-American serial killer. But this serial killer preyed on his victim outside his race. Between January and September of 1990, he murdered six women in the San Diego area. He stabbed one of his victims over 50 times.
that's a lot of stabbing. He left the bloody body, put circles around his victim's chest. And this would become his signature. Now, Mr. Prince even killed a, a mother and daughter. Then he went around and bragged about it to his friends. And this serial killer was so bold, so confident that he wouldn't get caught. He would wear the lady's uh, wedding ring on the necklace around his chest. Now you can't get no bolder than that. And doing his nine month killing spree. Police dubbed him as the Claremont Killer when he was arrested in September of 91. He was convicted of all six counts of first degree murder, 20 counts of burglary, and one count of rape. Now the man was sentenced to death. He is now being held in San Quentin. This is another story. From First Cup in the Morning, my name is Odell Harris. Cleotis Prince Jr. A man who killed six women in San Diego. Some serial killers like guns. He went with the blade. I guess he needed this monster like it up close and personal. And I was wondering why everybody uh, like to hear about serial killers and murders. Maybe because we grew up with like Frankenstein and Dracula and the more bloody, the more interesting the story. My name is Odell Harris. And this is First Cup in the Morning. And at the end of our show today, we want to say everybody be careful out there. Wash your hands. Put on your mask. You ain't protecting yourself from virus. You're protecting it from you giving it away. Because a lot of people don't know if you have it or not. So I see you. This is First Cup in the Morning with Odell Harris. This rundown farm. The Canadian police discovered an unimaginable horror. This is the largest serial killing investigation in North America. A slaughterhouse for human beings. There was DNA all over the farm. Body parts in the form of bones and teeth and partial jaw bones. For more than a decade, 
A predator had hunted women in Vancouver. The killing, the dismembering, it was just a process he really enjoyed. The skulls were bisected with a reciprocating saw, which he used in his slaughterhouse on the pigs. At the time of his capture, the number of dead and missing women was staggering. He was going for an even 50 as far as the number of victims were concerned. His shocking crimes earned him the name The Butcher. Robert Willie Picton, Vancouver's most prolific serial killer. February 1999, Willie Picton was on the prowl. He headed to Vancouver's downtown east side, looking for a prostitute or a drug addict, any woman desperate for money. He spotted a young cocaine addict and offered to buy her drugs. Once ensnared, he took her back to his trailer. Once dead, Picton knew how to make his victim disappear. Willie was suspected of literally butchering the women like the animals or the pigs that he butchered. Picton's gruesome methods made his crimes almost undetectable. To stop him, the police had to conduct the most complex investigation in Canadian history. Robert William Picton was born on the 24th of October, 1949. His parents, Leonard and Louise Picton, ran a pig farm in Port Coquitlam, 15 miles east of Vancouver. On the farm, the family raised, slaughtered and butchered livestock. The life on their farm was very primitive. The animals were always allowed to run in and out of the Picton house. Willie's older sister, Linda, lived with relatives in Vancouver because his father believed that a pig farm was no place for a girl to grow up. Willie and his younger brother David stayed behind to work. And their demanding mother made sure that the boys stayed on task. She really was a tyrant. She ran the roost. The kids worked very, very hard. And she had this distinctive voice. She'd shout at the kids and say, you kids get out of here right now, and she'd screech at them. For Louise Picton, pigs came first, and cleanliness wasn't a concern. The Picton children were famous for stinking of manure and of pigs and unwashed clothing and unwashed bodies. When they got on the school bus in the morning, children didn't want to sit near them, and they called them stinky piggy. Willie struggled at school. His teachers labelled him slow, and he was given special lessons. He and his brother tried to escape school in any way possible. They would come back home and sneak into the house and hide under their beds, and they would stay there all day until school was out so that their parents wouldn't know that they had skipped. Friendless, the young Willie focused on farm work, especially caring for the family's livestock. When he was 11 years old, Willie used his savings to buy a calf at auction. The animal became his pet and only friend. He 
he just really loved the calf. Every day he would come home and nurture it, take care of it, feed it. One day he came home and the, the calf was missing. Willie went to his mother and she was very brisk with him and said to go, go down to the barn. He went down to the barn and found that the calf had been slaughtered. He was hysterical. That numbed out any feelings he ever had for human connection and for understanding that, that he could love or to connect to someone. I think that was severed at that point. Willie continued to struggle in school. And in 1963, the 14-year-old dropped out. He found work as a butcher's apprentice, where he discovered a talent for dissecting animals. He knew how to saw them, where to saw them, where to make the incisions in the body parts, how to skin them. In short, he knew what he was doing. For the next four years, Willie kept up his chores and his apprenticeship. It was a relatively happy time for the 18-year-old. But life on the Picton farm was rarely happy or normal for long. On the 16th of October, 1967, Willie was taught a shocking lesson. Dave Picton had just got his driver's license. He was 16. And he took the family truck out for a bit of a joyride down the road. The inexperienced driver accidentally hit a young boy walking along a country road. David raced home and told his mother what had happened. As Willie later told friends, his mother knew just what to do. She told him to take the truck right away to the garage that looked after their vehicles and get it fixed, and I'll take care of the kid. Louise found the boy lying in the road. He was badly injured, but still alive. The evidence suggests that she rolled his body into a watery ditch where he drowned. Although suspicious of the circumstances, the police ruled the death an accident. None of the Pictons were charged with a crime. It was a family where if you could get away with something, you got away with it. Picton's mother was extremely antisocial, and I think it was those antisocial traits that um, Louise had that really affected Willie and really shaped his feelings about what he could get away with. In 1970, just after his 21st birthday, Willie inexplicably left his apprenticeship. He went to work full-time on his parents' farm. There was really no one else but Willie to do the, the farm work. I think in the back of his mind, he thought, if I go out in the world, you know, there's a possibility I'm going to fail. The feeling of being connected, maybe almost too dependent on his mother, I think that pulled him back towards the farm and gave him a feeling like it was, it was a safer place to be. Willie continued to feed the pigs and shovel manure. And he added a few new jobs to his list. He'd go to auction and buy pigs, then bring them back to the farm and slaughter them. Willie's work often took him to West Coast Reduction, an animal waste disposal facility near downtown Vancouver. Willie was known to drop off barrels of materials at the rendering plant, uh, which would take the materials and turn them into other products. After trips to the plant, Willie often visited a seedy neighborhood known as Low Track in Vancouver's downtown east side. 
the area attracted prostitutes and drug addicts. The downtown east side is probably the biggest concentration of human misery that exists in the developed world. I mean, there's nothing like it anywhere else in terms of the numbers of people that are down and out and never coming back. People are forced to support themselves through selling drugs, selling their bodies, stealing. At street corners and dingy bars, Willie could pay for companionship, affection, and sex. Things he couldn't get anywhere else. He spent large amounts of money on the girl, whatever she wanted for, like, endless amounts. So when they returned, they would brag about him to their, their friends, that this guy is, like, a really good guy to go be with. Amid the sordid lives of Lotrak's population, Willie found his niche. He began frequenting the Astoria Hotel, a pub on East Hastings Street. Here, men talked to him as equals, and women offered him sexual favors. He had grown up as a very powerless person, and to have people that he could do favors for, help out, do anything, gave him a position, gave him a feeling that he had some sort of power. Power that he enjoyed. But gradually, Willie's need for power grew. He picked up prostitutes with increasing regularity. Outwardly, he seemed friendly, even caring. But once a girl got into his car, he could turn violent. Guys like Willie, they need more and more stimulation because they feel restless, they feel bored, and I think the only way to get that is to do, to, to kind of up the ante and to do something more. Willie Picton's harsh childhood and dark desires were transforming him into a monster. And the women of Vancouver's low track would prove to be easy prey. He just did what he knew, and that was butcher and dispose of things. And you've got this recipe for murder that just doesn't end. In 1975, 25-year-old Willie Picton spent his days butchering pigs and his nights trawling for prostitutes in Vancouver's seedy downtown east side. Willie had two personalities, you know. He would be the kind of aw shucks, simple farm boy out in the country. In town, he was the big spender, the boss of the Astoria, handing out the money, handing out the drugs. He'd settled into a predictable, if not disturbing, routine. But in 1978, Picton's life changed abruptly. His parents' health had been failing, and in January of that year, his father died. Soon after, his mother became terminally ill with cancer. As Willie took care of her, he saw this once all-powerful woman become sickly and frail. changed her diapers, he looked after her, he nursed her. And he also found that very traumatic. The most basic primitive thing in the world is a relationship a child had with its mother. It's the first relationship, and it's one that is very hard to break. To have to care for her was probably one of the hardest things he had to do. In April, Willie's mother died, leaving the farm and slaughterhouse to her three children. The siblings split the modest inheritance 
But Willie's brother and sister wanted nothing to do with the family business. They left the farm work to Willie. After all, butchering pigs was what he knew best. Willie's not the brightest guy in the world. He was dirty and he lived like a pig and his life revolved around pigs. I really don't think he enjoyed life on the farm, but he knew it was his responsibility. That it was something he had to do. There was a fear that he wouldn't succeed out in the bigger world. And there also might have been a feeling on his part that they did have this pig farm. It could be worth something someday, and it might be worth sticking around. Willie's brother Dave took over the main house, and Willie moved into a trailer on an isolated part of the property. He was still stuck on the farm, but for the first time in his life, Picton could do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. He frequently entertained female guests. He'd bring women out to stay for a while, and he would teach them butchering skills, and they would go to movies, and they would go shopping. It was sort of this bucolic, nice life with one of these women after another. These friends of Willie's didn't mind his poor hygiene. Willie was such a distasteful character that he had to troll pretty low to get friends. Most of his friends and associates were people that wanted things from him. Picton would often pay these women with money and drugs to clean his trailer or help around the farm. But they never had sex with Willie, and he wanted it badly. One evening in 1980, Picton was cruising the streets of Eastside. He spotted a young girl on Hastings Street. According to the girl, Willie picked her up in his truck, and, as she later told a journalist, he quickly turned violent. She was a 14-year-old that he picked up in his car in downtown Vancouver and attacked her with a knife. And he raped her and threw her out into a parking lot. He really saw the prostitutes as no better than the pigs. Maybe they were sort of lowlifes to him, people that you could do things to. Him getting away with it just sort of further the thrill. Despite this seemingly newfound lust for violence, this alleged attack seemed to satiate Willie's desires. For over a decade, he resumed his routine of days on the farm and nights on the town. Then, in 1994, the Pictons sold the north end of the farm. The sale netted them almost $2 million. Flush with cash, Willie and his brother started a social events business in 1996. Piggy's Palace Good Time Society was an excuse for the brothers to throw wild parties. There would be literally hundreds of people, sometimes as many as 1,800 people had showed up. Willie often took prostitutes from low track to palace parties. Afterwards, they'd go to his trailer. They engaged in uh, uh, kinky sex involving bondage. For the first time in his life, Willie was in control. His recent wealth gave him power over people, especially the wretched souls of Vancouver's low track. 
he exploited the vulnerable drug-addicted prostitutes in order to satisfy his disturbing sexual fantasies. He uh, was a pig farmer who obviously had a kind of taste for activities that most of us would consider not pleasant. And when he didn't get what he wanted, he could turn violent. Quickly. In March 1997, a prostitute called Wendy Eistetter went home with Picton. During sex, Willie tried to handcuff her, but she broke free. Picton grew enraged. He said that he, was, he had a knife and he was coming at her. Wendy managed to grab a knife from the kitchen. For every stab, he stabbed her and she stabbed him back. Barely clothed and badly wounded, Wendy fled the farm. An elderly couple driving past picked her up and took her to a nearby hospital. She's got scars everywhere, all over the place. It was, it was horrible. Like huge scars, like really, like gashed down and there and there. The police charged Picton with assault. But Wendy was too terrified to testify. She never showed up for the trial. The case against Picton was dismissed. He went back to his farm, back to his pigs, and back to his butcher knives. In August 1997, Picton returned to the seedy low track. He approached a 24-year-old woman called Marnie Frey. Marnie was a heroin addict. Willie offered to buy her drugs in exchange for sex. He took her back to his trailer. After sex, he turned violent. Marnie was never seen again. He probably took her body apart and buried it in pieces on the farm, some of it anyway. What was left, he may have disposed of at West Coast Reduction, the animal waste disposal plant that Willie frequented. The murder of Marnie Frey marked the start of a violent new chapter in Picton's life. Along with a compelling desire to sexually dominate women, he now had a taste for murder. Between 1995 and 1997, 21 women vanished from Vancouver's sleazy downtown Eastside neighborhood. He loved every bit of it. The pickup, the courtship on the street corner downtown, how much he'd pay, the killing, the dismembering. I think it was just a process he really enjoyed. No one suspected that Willie Picton was luring women to his pig farm and slaughtering them. Serial killers generally need a bigger and bigger thrill, and so they escalate their violence. When you see that with Willie, you see that he went from going to have sex with prostitutes to bringing them to his home, to raping someone, to uh, killing. In 1998, nine more women vanished. The police did not investigate, and they discounted the possibility of foul play. 
there were family members and uh, friends and associates of the women that were were missing that were filing police reports and being told, um, you know, these these women just get on the get on the Greyhound and uh, they go somewhere else. Police don't like to investigate any case where there isn't a body, so they said, oh, she's just visiting her family in Florida or whatever. They didn't want to take these cases seriously. But the prostitutes and drug addicts on Vancouver's Skid Row knew that they were being targeted. There wasn't no notice, like, we weren't informed or anything about they beware there's a monster on the street. and just girls that were not on car anymore. Elaine Allen ran a shelter that provided food and social services to women who worked the streets. It was horrifying watching women going missing. We were so aware of it. I think we all felt so powerless to do anything about it. Allen reported several disappearances, but the police didn't follow them up. We were just constantly rebuffed and told that, you know, well, this, this woman typically takes off and she'll take off with a, with a John and, you know, she's fine. I'm sure she's just fine. The Vancouver police wouldn't even say serial and killer in the same sentence. They would say, well, what do you expect? These women will get in a car with a stranger. So who knows where they are? Like, you know, sort of a shrugging of the shoulders kind of attitude. Women from Low Track continued to go with Willie Picton, partly because of the money he gave them and partly because he had developed a reputation for being a nice guy. He even maintained friendships with a few women. I don't think it's surprising that a serial killer has another life. It's not a simple direction that every woman that they encounter they must kill. It's, a, a, it's more complicated than that. One of Willie's friends was a crack addict called Lynn Ellingson. For several months in 1999, she lived on his farm. After getting high in Willie's trailer one night, Lynn fell asleep. Something had awakened her that night and she looked out and saw light coming from the slaughterhouse curious she went outside to take a peek in see what was going on dangling in front of her were a woman's purple painted toenails it was Georgina Papin Picton's latest victim Terrified, Lynn fled the farm. Willie did not go after her. Well, Willie was a bit of a conundrum. Perhaps he didn't kill Lynn Ellingson because she was a friend. He'd gotten to know her. Most serial killers kill people that they don't know. Ellingson never went to the police, and Willie continued to butcher. The pig farmer millionaire was on his way to becoming Canada's most prolific serial killer. By February 1999, pig farmer Robert Willie Picton had murdered at least two women. But more than 30 women were missing from the streets of Vancouver. As the police continued to discount the disappearances, Picton prepared to claim another victim. Her name was Brenda Wolfe. She was a drug addict who had come to Willie's pig farm hoping to score some drugs. She never left. He typically bound his victims or handcuffed them and strangled some victims either with wire or with belt. 
As Willie later claimed, he carried his victims' lifeless bodies to the slaughterhouse. With the precision of an experienced butcher, he cut them up. He just did what he knew, and that was butcher and dispose of things. He probably never gave it any thought. For most of his victims, Picton would load their remains into barrels and dump them at West Coast Reduction. Brenda was the 53rd Vancouver woman to vanish without a trace. The missing women were all prostitutes or drug addicts from the city's skid row. Women were very scared. They saw their friends were going missing. They, they knew that. I heard women say, I'm going to be the next one. If you don't see me tomorrow, you know, I'm going out tonight. Come looking for me. As women became increasingly nervous, Willie began having trouble convincing them to come to his farm. Willie has diminished capacities. He's a bit of a dim bulb, but he was shifty and clever in, in a kind of animal way. The pig farmer had a few female friends, and he found ways to use them to lure victims. One of his friends was Dinah Taylor. Willie sent Taylor to women's shelters in search of prostitutes and drug addicts. Dinah Taylor would go in there and they'd say, let's go party with Uncle Willie. He's got drugs, he's got booze, he's got money. I do remember seeing her in the center a few times in the evenings. She would pop in and sometimes pop out with the, with the woman with her. And once he had them at his farm, the women were easy prey. It's sort of a psychological thrill to go from being the rejected to being the one that sits back and has women being brought to him, and not only being brought to him, but being brought to him to prepare for slaughter. He would usually accuse them of stealing something from him, stealing money from his wallet, something like that, and use that as an excuse to work up a rage against them, and then he'd attack them. By January 2001, the number of missing women had reached 62. The authorities could no longer ignore the problem. That April, the Vancouver Police Department and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police launched the Missing Women's Task Force. Reward posters promised $100,000 for information leading to an arrest. Over 12,000 tip-offs flooded the hotline. Several callers mentioned a pig farmer east of Vancouver. Willie's name was eventually added to a list of suspects. He had a prior arrest for assault, but no convictions. The police didn't probe any further. They didn't really know how to look for a serial killer. They didn't have the manpower. They had terrible records. They didn't have a DNA bank to check the identity of these women. The families of the missing women were desperate for answers. They urged the police to investigate. It didn't matter how many times you phoned them and explained to them that we think that she could be on this farm or somewhere out in Port Coquitlam. They didn't seem to care. I don't know why they didn't put more importance on him. Uh, they were tracking a whole lot of different people, and he probably just fell through the cracks. Willie continued his killing spree during the course of 2001. In June, he murdered Andrea Josebury. 
And in August, Serena Abbotsway became his next conquest. But unlike his other victims, Picton didn't immediately dispose of their bodies. Instead, he placed their heads, hands and feet inside plastic buckets and stored them in a meat freezer. I think he got sloppy. I think he got careless. Here's a man who may not have really understood the implications of what could happen to him. I think he thought he was sort of invulnerable. Again, going back to his mother, he, his mother got away with murder, and I think he felt sort of invincible. In November 2001, Willie stopped on the corner of Maine and Hastings to talk to 26-year-old Mona Wilson. At his promise of free dope and booze, she jumped into his car. Instead of taking Mona to his trailer, Picton led her to a camper van behind a barn. After sex, he savagely beat her. Perhaps this particular woman tried to fight back or did something that was outside the script that, that Willie had in his mind and that somehow it must have set off whatever psychological rage that he had. Picton then shot her with a 22 caliber revolver. Her blood spattered the walls and soaked into the mattress. It just could have been that as time went on, he was escalating his violence because he had more and more of a need just to act it out um, in ways that were more violent. By the end of 2001, 64 women from Vancouver's low track were on the list of missing women. But the police were no closer to breaking the case. Finally, on the 1st of February 2002, investigators got an unexpected lead. A truck driver who occasionally worked at the Picton farm told an officer that he'd once seen illegal weapons in Willie's trailer. Curious to learn more about a potential murder suspect, the police obtained a search warrant. They had to move very, very carefully. They didn't want to lose this one. Four days later, the Vancouver police closed in on the Picton property. Their gruesome discoveries would trigger the largest forensic investigation in Canadian history. The 5th of February 2002. Drug addicts and prostitutes were mysteriously disappearing from Vancouver's downtown east side. What the police didn't know was that one man had murdered at least six of these women and sadistically butchered their corpses. But a confidential tip-off was about to lead to an unexpected break in the case. Armed with a search warrant, the police were preparing to raid Robert Willie Picton's pig farm. Their search was for illegal weapons, but they soon found much more than that. One of the investigators came across an inhaler that had one of the missing women's name on it. It was prescribed to Serena Abbotsway. And at that point, the Joint Task Force decided to halt the firearms investigation and obtain new search warrants. Willie Picton spent the night behind bars. The police alerted the media to the break in the case. By dawn, reporters and camera crews from across the country had surrounded the farm. Everyone just stood there with their mouths open. The imaginations went wild. It was like everyone's worst nightmare come true. Inside the property, investigators uncovered a grisly scene. Proof of Mona Wilson's murder. Her blood was found 
soaked into a mattress. It was found on the floor. It was found on cupboards. It was found on the walls, all the way to the, the kitchen. In a rubbish bin outside the camper van was all that remained of the missing woman. You could see her brain. You could see her hair. You could see the just the bisected human head and floating in this pinkish soup. In an interrogation room, task force officers grilled Picton for hours. But he was surprisingly calm, and he denied everything. There was a part of him that didn't care, the same way his mother didn't care that he had feelings. He put his legs up over the edge of the chair, and he was having a good time. And he was really enjoying himself. After 11 hours of intense questioning, the investigators changed tactics. They decided to put an undercover police officer in the cell with Willie to see if he said anything. Willie knew he was under surveillance, but that didn't stop him from bragging to his cellmate. At one point, Willie told the undercover cop that he was going for an even 50, which in Willie's mind meant that he had killed 49 women. Picton also implied that he'd used a disposal plant to get rid of the bodies. He mentioned to the undercover policeman that um, he got sloppy in the end. He finally had somebody that he could talk to about what was really happening. One of the biggest parts for serial killers is to get to brag about how many people they've killed. On the 22nd of February, the police charged Picton with the murders of Serena Abbotsway and Mona Wilson. Meanwhile, a small army of police and forensic specialists were converging on the farm to search for the remains of the other victims. The police investigators made a grid of the entire property, and they were searching it grid box by grid box. The forensic investigation revealed a terrifying record of murder and depravity. There were some freezers in there. One of the freezers contained two buckets, with each containing the head and hands of, and feet of Serena Abbotsway and Andrea Josbury. They took literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of DNA samples. It was just a mind-boggling police operation, just a forensic search that probably is unraveled almost anywhere. By April 2002, the police had enough evidence to charge Picton with five more counts of murder. My name is Odell Harris, and this is First Cup in the Morning. Today's story is about a 1925 serial killer here in our hometown, Toledo, Ohio. The police dubbed him as the Toledo Clubber. And the Toledo Clubber terrorized the city of Toledo. At the end of his attacks, 12 women have been victimized and five have died from their attacks. This story is next, right here on First Cup in the Morning after these messages. Expensive it is to buy a high quality mattress that you'll also be happy with for years to come. But that's what makes All's Well different. You see, All's Well features hybrid mattress technology, giving you the comfort of memory foam with the support of individually wrapped coils, all at an unbeatable price. 
And you can even try it for 100 nights risk-free. If you're not satisfied with the sleep that you're getting on one of their heavenly mattresses, simply ship it back. Plus, every one of their mattresses comes with a 10-year limited warranty. So if you ever have any problems, you don't have to worry about getting stuck with a lemon. When it comes to affordable mattresses that don't sacrifice on quality or luxury, All's Well is the best purchasing decision that you can make. Now, if you'd like to get free shipping on your first mattress from All's Well, simply follow the link in the show notes to let them know that we sent you and to help support the show. All's Well, dreamy mattresses for real life. And we back. November 10th, 1925. The Toledo Clubber was attacking women. Twelve women, be exact, five died. Some were left severely wounded. But see, the Toledo Clubber walk up behind the women, hit them in the back of the head, and then continues to hit them in the face with his club. His first victim was Miss Frank Hall. She was standing outside her house in Toledo when she was attacked on November the 10th. His next encounter was with the madman was Emma Hatfield, who encountered him while walking down the dark street. Linda Bergerman, Bergerman would fall victim as well encountered him in the same way as the previous victims. Sadly, both would die later from their injuries. They did manage to make a report to the police, but did no good. Several more attacks happened in seven days. The police of, the police of Toledo, Ohio was up in arms. The American Legion put 1,000 men on the street to help to protect the city. Escorts was provided to women who now was afraid to walk alone at night. It seemed that the city was being held hostage by the Toledo Clubber. Like any other profile, high profile case, tons of tips came in, but none ended in arrest or serious suspect. The authority put out a profile on the clubber claiming that he was a superhuman strength and that he would be like beastly and have wild eyes sound like something from a comic book in reality in reality he was probably just an average joe no one would ever suspect after a number of attacks after that 26-year-old school teacher and his 47-year-old housewife. The clubber ended. But before he ended his his uh, 14-day spree here in Toledo, Ohio, a bunch of fires, lumberyards was burnt and bombed. Then all of a sudden, the clubbing stopped. No one knows. Did he die? Did he have a heart attack? Was he put in prison from some other charge? 
to this day, no one was arrested or charged with this crime that held the city in hostage in 1925. Sadly, but true. This is a mystery. My name is Odell Harris. And the story I was telling you is about the Toledo Clubber. Story like this and more you hear right here on First Cup in the Morning with Odell Harris.